Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We're so glad you're here. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. For 2023, we're embarking on the Year of Our Lord, a user's guide to and through the Scriptures. So grab your Bible and join us as we journey through the Bible. We are in session two of our walk through the Bible together, our journey through the Bible. Um, and again, this is designed to hopefully be in addition to you as you do your through the year reading. But again, before we go any further, we always want to open a study in God's Word with a word of prayer. So let's bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank you for the hope that it gives us as well as the wisdom and the instruction. So take from, take this time that we dedicate into your hands. Use it to help us to gain a better understanding of our place in your kingdom, as well as an awe and appreciation of the links that you went through to make sure that we would have it available to us. So open our hearts as well as our minds to you just now and bless this time we pray in the most holy name of Christ. Amen. All right, before we get into the text itself, I wanted to talk a little bit about the discipline of journaling, which I think is one of the most powerful tools that we have as Christians towards spiritual maturity. As you do your daily reading, I hope that you have a, a blank journal of some kind, be it a three-ring binder or one of those fancy-smancy leather-bound jobbies. Either way, something that you can write in, that you can put the, uh, the reference to the amount of Scripture that you covered, the date, but at least these are some questions that I'd like for you to answer with each entry. And this is a gift that you'll basically be giving your future self. As you're reading, what are you reading that may have been unknown to you? And it's okay to say that I've already covered this stuff already, but if the Holy Spirit pops anything brand new to your attention, something maybe that you'd forgotten, something that maybe you hadn't noticed, write it down. Secondly, what confuses me? What seems to be a contradiction? What seems to be something that, that took you by surprise or maybe was something that, uh, that caused you to wonder, um, should I really take this at face value? What challenges you? What in the Word of God do you see that you don't necessarily agree with at first glance? Because I promise you, as, especially as we get into Leviticus, there are going to be some things that you're going to read some things, especially in the ceremonial law, that might chafe against, shall we say, modern sensibilities. What challenges you? That's not to say that God's wrong. That's to say that it might be something that you're not accustomed to, something that causes you to scratch your head. And what did God illuminate to you? What questions of the past did he suddenly answer? What things that you might have had a, a, a concern about beforehand? Or we, we call the Word of God inexhaustible. 
Because no matter how many times you go through it, the Holy Spirit will always throw something in your direction that you didn't notice the first time. Something new. A new insight. A new message. Something that your heart will hold on to. So, what was unknown? What was confusing? What was challenging? What was illuminating? Also, if you haven't done this already, please keep your session notes. Every time that we meet like this, for those of you sitting in from home, the notes that I pass out here in church are available for you at highlandbaptistchurch.org. Please print them out. There are spaces there for you to keep your personal notes on top of what I mention in my outlines. Whatever you write down there, um, keep them in a three-ring binder to save so that they can be an accompaniment to your reading and to your journaling. I also want to talk a little bit about the spiritual growth groups that we talked about last time. No fewer than three members, no more than five members. It needs to be small enough to keep a secret, large enough to make sure that you have somebody that's always poking you to do better. So no less than three, no more than five. Now, this was brought up after the session, and I want to address it really quickly. For those of you in those groups, I am going to do my best to go through this particular study. When, when we meet in this session, I will be doing a book-by-book book type of review with you. Now, whenever you do your own uh, Bible through a year type reading plans, please meet with your groups and decide on one that all of you can get your heads around. That way, somebody doesn't uh, come in with some notes on Exodus and someone else comes in with notes on Job. For your small groups, please agree on a Bible in a year reading plan. We are still at the point that if you did a book-by-book book type of plan or if you did a chronological plan, you should still be in the book of Genesis. So if you decide to change, you're in a place where you can do that without disrupting your schedule. And there are at least three things I want you to cover. And this conversation could take as short as 30 minutes, but I encourage you to meet in person if at all possible and enjoy some solid fellowship time together. Agree on a method. Discuss your class notes. When you t uh, take these sessions, the information that I give you, talk a little bit about them. Same thing. What challenged you? What didn't you know? What did you find interesting? What did you find confusing? And I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. Discuss and also journal. Uh, discuss your journal entry highlights. Like between the six or seven days that you have met, with your uh, accountability group, your spiritual growth group. Talk about some passages in your journals that either really meant something to you or really confused you. Think of some highlights that you can share with your friends that are going through that same reading plan that you are. Also, if something uh, caused you to have questions, questions that you weren't able to satisfactorily answer as a group, 
When we do these type of broadcast sessions online, live comments are available. And our um, audiovisual person, normally Dan, is back there always ready to shout out on your behalf if someone has a question, type them in the comments section. If it's sometime later on through the course of the week or into the future, all of these are being archived on our YouTube channel. So if there's sometime in the future that you uh, have a question that comes up about a particular session, put it in the comments section and we will address it. But please don't leave questions unasked. Use those comment sections and take part in the class, even if you're not here in person. Suggestions for spiritual growth, because that is the goal of what we're doing, spiritual maturity. Now, what do I mean by spiritual maturity? Uh, I, we have a discipleship pathway here. Love God, share His Word, love others, spread the gospel. It's part of our mission statement here at Highlawn, which is to know Christ and to make Christ known. Each time you go from one step to the next, it's an indication that you're maturing spiritually, that you're effectively going from being a kindergarten Christian to a first grade Christian and so on. And there are people in our churches that have been in kindergarten for a very long time. And there are some very young Christians that have dive, uh, dove in head first to get into the Word of God and then go straight into the mission field as quickly as they can to try to mature as quickly as they can. So not everybody, the number of years that you've spent in church is not an indicator of your spiritual maturity level. Hear me on that. The amount of years that you have spent in church is not always a clear indicator of your spiritual maturity level. What is, is your level of dedication, your level of reliance, and most importantly, your level of obedience to God. How are you? in terms of being conformed out of the image of this world and into the image of God? That's the question. We'll talk a little bit more about that later, but the tools that I'm giving you are part of the, the quickest method of growth, if you will, diving deeply into God's Word, letting it challenge you, talking it over, learning from it, and applying it into your life. So some suggestions overall. First of all, please pray before you get into God's Word. Every time you open the Bible, no matter if it's for this, no matter if it's for your own personal devotional practice, whatever, before you crack open the Word of God, start with a season of prayer. Talk to God and ask Him to respond to you through the Spirit and through the Holy Scriptures. Secondly, dismiss every presupposition or preconception you have in terms of what the Bible says and what it means. Go into your study of God's Word like a blank slate and just let it talk to you. Anything that you have learned philosophically, anything that you have learned uh, from the point of what comes to you from behind the pulpit, anything that you might have learned at school in other various subjects that kind of surround the idea of the things that we're going to talk about, history, culture, philosophy, the origins of creation, dismiss it all and allow God's Word to speak. Give the Bible the authority it deserves, in other words. Start by placing it first as your primary source of all things truth. Let Christianity, the Christian worldview, 
be the lens that you view the truth. And last, please ask questions. I know that many of us grew up with the phrase that you don't question God. I hate that phrase. Because it always, it tends to produce within the people that hear it a, a lack of curiosity about the things of God. Be curious. Remember Acts 17.11. I put that as a disclaimer on top of all of my notes because the people in Thessalonica were more noble in spirit than the Christians that Paul left in Berea because not only did they accept the gospel with all willingness of heart, but they also searched the scriptures daily for themselves to prove what Paul had said was so. They didn't take anything at face value. They asked questions. They wanted to know the mind of God. They wanted to know the wisdom of God. They wanted to understand, so they asked questions. Don't disrespect God. Don't disregard God's sovereignty. But if something is confusing, if something is perplexing, if something seems contradictory, first rejoice, because if you do your homework, I guarantee you, you'll get a blessing out of it. But don't be hesitant in asking questions. All right. So let's talk about Torah, the most venerated holy scripture on planet earth right now. Also the most well-preserved from a documentation standpoint. Uh, Torah, sometimes called in Christian circles the Pentateuch. Pentateuch is a Greek word meaning five books. They are the five books of Moses. And if you have any trouble with the authorship, ask Jesus Christ himself, who attributes these five books to Moses in John chapter 5, John chapter 7, and Paul writing in God's word under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 10. So if you believe, God, if you believe the voice of Christ, you should have no trouble with uh, the authorship of the Torah. If you don't believe the voice of Christ, then you've got other problems that we probably need to talk about. These books consist of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and of course, Deuteronomy. Most often you'll see the word Torah translated as the law, but more literally it's also translated as the teachings or the instruction. Certain themes that you'll come across as we talk through these five books. The Creator and the enemy are both introduced. And I want you to note this down in your notes. The Creator and the enemy, the, the God and the devil, are not exact opposites. They are not equal powers. They are not a yin and a yang, yin and yang. God is the Creator of everything that exists. Satan, Lucifer, whatever you want to call him, is a creation. Less in power, less in all things, lesser. They are not opposites. One is in opposition to the other, anti the other, but they are not in, in the extreme sense equal or opposite. God is more powerful. God is older. God is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. Satan is not. We'll talk about the rejection of the Creator and the corruption of the creation. 
the coming of death as an institution in the world, the introduction of entropy into the universe. Even the ground itself started to act in hostility. The, the crazy thing about faith and about science right now, if you will, having a conversation with people of faith, uh, is that we only know reality from a post-fall standpoint. Other than the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2, we don't really have a glimpse of what creation was like before the fall. We only know what it was like after the fall, after death, after corruption. We will see the spiraling nature of evil, meaning that as long as human nature remains, it will constantly get worse and worse and worse. We see that happen in the book of Genesis. Before the flood, we see it happen in the book of Genesis. After the flood, we really see it happen when we come to the book of the Judges. Because with each passing judge over Israel, Israel keeps getting worse and worse and worse as far as their relationship with God is concerned. The more evil is allowed to exist, the worse it corrupts human beings. Grace has its first demonstration in the Torah and is actually codified in God's law. There is also a very big foreshadowing of salvation, the salvific plan, and of course the Savior Himself. Faithful remnants start to emerge, especially in the book of Genesis, where you have, of all of the prehistoric earth, you only have one family found faithful to God. After the flood, the city arises, the first global empire, and out of that empire, only one family remains faithful to God. And that idea of a remnant keeps coming back over and over and over again in God's Word. Prophecy, the priesthood, and the Word of God itself are all commissioned beginning in the Torah. The covenantal theology, covenants that uh, both establish a relationship and maintain a relationship begin here. The Creator gives both the ceremonial and the moral law of Israel. Underline that. There is a difference, and a lot of Christians don't understand this for some reason. There is a difference between the ceremonial law of Israel that kept Israel as a separate people from the Gentiles for centuries and the moral law of God, a lot of which is still in effect today. What's right is right. What is wrong is wrong. That has not changed. Even though today we can eat a cheeseburger. Paganism has its first emergence and we see the fruit of its corruption. And the Creator, we see Him assuming His position as the judge of all the rebellious. So there are certain questions that as we talk about religious involvement, what we call spiritual questions that any religious institution uh, seeks to answer. And really and truthfully, there are only two worldviews. There are the, there's the worldview that accepts the one true God and His Messiah, and the one that doesn't, the humanistic, the secular. These questions simply put are about who we are, who God is, and what our relationship is like. Who am I? Where do I come from? Where am I going? What is my value, my worth? What is my purpose? Who am I ultimately accountable to? Is this all that I am? Is there nothing more? Is this all that there is? And finally, and most importantly, what happens when I die? If we are in a secular worldview, who am I? Is answered by 
We are a biochemical entity. You are an accident whereby a puddle of goo eventually became you by way of the zoo. Where do I come from? Well, under a secular worldview, you are part of a cosmic accident. In the beginning, there was nothing and it blew up. Where am I going? Under a secular worldview, we are all headed straight for non-existence. The laws of entropy, the heat death of the universe and all that. Eventually, everything is will turn to nothing. What am I worth? Under a secular worldview, you are worth whatever you are told by other people. The rise of social media seems very blatantly to indicate that. How many likes do you get? How many friends do you have? How many subscribers? Our world today tells us, in other words, that your personal value is dictated to you from, from an outside source, from other people. What is my purpose under the secular worldview? You don't have one intrinsically. You just kind of make it up as you go. Who am I ultimately accountable to? Well, that answer is anyone stronger than yourself. You begin life being accountable to your parents because they're taller and stronger. As you become an adult, you become accountable to society because they have guns, bigger ones than you do. You're accountable to governments, nations, people, peer pressure, and so forth, teachers, people older, wiser, stronger than you are. The question of, is this all that I am? The secular answer is yes. You be you. I see mentioned an awful lot. Is this all that there is? The secular answer is yes. This is all that there is. Reality is anything that you can see, feel, touch, taste, and so forth. What happens to me when I die? Your existence is over. It ceases. You're done. Now there are some that say that you go back to the zoo, in a manner of speaking. Uh, but as far as being a human being or being the person that you were, it's pretty universal that even in those other contexts of reincarnation, and the Bible does address that, we'll talk about that later on, you, you quit being you. So for all intents and purposes, existence terminates at the point of death. Under the Christian worldview, who am I? That question becomes, I'm a child of God. I am a prince or princess of this universe, a child of the king. The question, where do I come from, is answered with the statement that you are a deliberate, intelligent, predetermined, planned out creation of he who created it all. Where am I going? If you are in Christ, you are going to inherit eternity. You are going to share in the glorious kingdom that is his. We talked about that last year in our Revelation study as the crowns were given out that were then tossed back to the Creator. What am I worth? And I talk about this all throughout my sermons. If you're in Christ, everybody is an image bearer of God. Therefore, in His eyes, we are a being of eternal significance and divine worth. Let me say that again. If you are in Christ, you are a being of eternal significance and divine worth. What is my purpose? Your purpose, if you are in Christ, is that you have an individual and divine calling. 
You have a mission, you have a purpose, you have a ministry, and you are fearfully and wonderfully made, fully equipped in the power of the Holy Spirit for that calling. Who am I ultimately accountable to? Survey says, God, the judge of all, the righteous king, he who is both glorious and gracious. Actually, survey doesn't matter. That's the truth of God's Scripture. I just said that for the sake of being facetious. Let's go on. Is this all that I am? No. You are constantly being sanctified, growing more and more in the grace and the knowledge and the glory of Christ, being conformed ever to the image of His Son. You are tackling entropy and winning. The body may decay, but the soul is constantly being fed if you are in Christ and you are giving yourself to, the, uh, to his obedience into the opportunities for growth. Is this all that there is? No. Under the Christian worldview, we understand that the reality as it exists right now as we think of it is actually something akin to a simulation. That nature is far and away more finite than the supernatural. That the third heaven... Uh, Paul talks about this, and it's the way it is in, in, um, in, in Jewish philosophy. Uh, the first heaven, so to speak, is the sky, the visible sky. Second is space and all that is beyond. Third is the supernatural. It is the kingdom of heaven, which is far and away grander and is the true reality, so to speak. Far and away more potent and real than the reality that we call the natural. What happens to me when I die? Well, if you're in Christ... You have eternal life and a divine position as a member of the family of God. So, those are some of the basic questions that we begin seeing answered in the book of Genesis. Genesis establishes the foundation on which everything else in Scripture is founded. The author, we attribute it again traditionally and through Scripture to Moses. Uh, who was born during the uh, slavery of the Jewish people in Egypt. He was born into the tribe of Levi, and of course we know that he was adopted into and educated as Egyptian royalty. He was called from that to be a prophet of God, but not just any prophet. He was the lawgiver of the people of Israel and their liberator from bondage in Egypt. He was also unique above all the prophets that he himself had face-to-face conversations with God. There are those that are detractors who are, from a non-spiritual standpoint, see Moses as collecting this or collecting that, or, uh, or worse, that people only during the Davidic kingdom or into the Babylonian exile started writing, quote-unquote, on Moses' behalf. But we know that Moses was literate by his own testimony. We know, according to Jesus, that he wrote these books because they all attribute to him in one way, shape, or form and from his own testimony, and also that we know that of all the prophets of God, he sat down and talked to God. On Mount Sinai, as he was chiseling out the second version, not the second version, the second copy of the Ten Commandments, as he was writing them, he was in direct conversation with God. So not only was he being divinely inspired, but he was under direct visual and auditory uh, superintendents of God Himself. 
we can date the book back to approximately 1445 B.C. Uh, that's according to most texts on the on the the faraway age of Genesis, which I personally subscribe to. Uh, the name of the book in Hebrew is Rashid, which is actually the first word of the book, which means in the beginning. The Greek word, the Septuagint word, is of course Genesis, which means origins. It covers God's creation of all reality, the beginning of humanity and its fall into sin, the pathway of redemption, and of course the origin of the people of Israel. Its purpose is, is to establish a historical and theological foundation for the rest of the Bible. Everything springs from the five books of Moses, particularly the book of Genesis. It identifies sin and the necessity of redemption. It is, it, it, we have the first covenants of blessing and restoration appear here uh, in the book, in view of God's relationship with, uh, with Abraham. It establishes a ministerial family. Remember, God tends to act in remnants. And it also refutes, the book almost anticipates a bunch of secular and pagan philosophies. Here are a few. It refutes atheism because it calls out and identifies the creator of all matter and life itself. It isn't like the Greek pantheon where you have Kronos and Terra who form the universe and then um, uh, the, the, the bringer of fire, the titan that brought fire to humanity. No, he's the ruler of the underworld. I'll think of it later. It's, it's also the name of a very bad science fiction movie. But anyway, a God of this and a God of that and a God of the other. No, the Bible identifies one creator, all-sufficient, all-powerful, all-glorious God. It defeats pantheism. Pantheism is the idea that God is in and among and throughout everything. But no, according to the book of Genesis, the creator is distinct from the creation. It refutes polytheism by identifying only one single God. It refutes naturalism because it basically tells us that nature has a beginning and will have a conclusion. It also teaches us basically that the supernatural is far and away more extensive than the natural. It battles humanism, which is basically the climate we're in today, by saying that God is the ultimate authority, not us. It refutes evolution from a, from a cosmic level by saying that the universe and that indeed life itself is not an accident, it is by design. Life only comes from life. And it refutes deism, that's the belief that a creator God invented the universe and then took his hands off of it, a divine clockmaker I think it was called. It refutes deism by saying that the supernatural God in fact himself intercedes and intervenes into creation. Christ is a prime example of that. God, not only coming into reality, but becoming a person, dwelling among us, performing miracles, teaching, dying, and being resurrected again. The overall outline of the book is there for your, in your notes. We'll be going through chapters um, 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 in this study. But again, we also cover the fall of humanity in chapter 3, Cain and Abel in 4, 
the genealogy in the first remnant of Noah in chapter 5, uh, Noah and the first covenant in all of creation, chapters 6 through 9, the Tower of Babel and the rise of the first world empire in 10 and 11, Abraham in 12 through 20, Isaac in 21 through 26, Jacob in 27 through 36, the life of Joseph, his rescue from his, um, his rescue of his family, and the conclusion of the life of Israel, 37 through 50. Prometheus. Thank you. According to Greek mythology, it was actually Prometheus that carved man out of clay and gave it life. It wasn't Zeus. All right, anyway, going on. That was going to irritate me until I figured it out. Let's go on. Word study really quickly through the first couple of chapters of Genesis. First one is the first name given for God, Elohim. Elohim is actually a plural. It is not a singular. And there are many that suspect that this is talking about the angels and so forth. But in reality, I, I believe that it is an allusion to the Trinity because we hear in the rest of the Bible, uh, for instance, in the book of John, by Him everything was made and without Him nothing was made. The world was not put together by angels. There was only one Creator God in three persons. So I do believe that this is an allusion compared to the rest of Scripture to the Trinity itself. And we'll talk about that more as we continue. Barah, which is the word to create. It's a unique word because there are other words in Hebrew that mean to make. Usually barah actually means to form out of something, to cut out of something, to carve out of something, but it has a qualifier next to it in that case. To carve out of wood, to carve out of stone, to sculpt out of clay, and so forth. But in this case, when it's by itself, it means to create absolutely, meaning to make something from nothing. To make something from nothing. I remember that there's an old joke regarding Genesis 1, where apparently a scientist is having a conversation with God about making life. And the, and God's, uh, the scientist basically tells God, I can do that. And he starts grabbing all these chemicals and all these things to start electrolyzing them. And God says, no, if you want to do it the way I did it, you can't start with any of that. You have to start with nothing. So when God created, when, when Genesis 1 tells us in the beginning, God created, what it's really telling us is that in the beginning, God formed from nothingness the heavens and the earth. Ruach, which is another word with dual meanings. It can mean breath, it can mean wind, but it also is used to mean spirit. The word pneuma in Greek is the exact same way. Where in English we have separate words for those concepts. In both the biblical languages, it's the same thing. So when the Ruach of God was hovering over the deep, it was the Spirit of God. That's also where we get the phrase that the Word of God was God-breathed. The Holy Spirit was directly inspiring. And, and when we see man carved from 
the uh, dust of the earth, what does God do to install a soul in him? He breathes into his nostrils the what? The ruach, the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now, this is going to be particularly important to us tonight. The words Arab and Boker. Arab is functionally used to mean evening or dusk or the gathering darkness more, more uh, literally. Its root word means to obfuscate or to turn something chaotic. Boker, which is the word that is functionally used for morning, literally means the breaking of dawn or the breaking of light. It's used functionally as morning, but it means the gathering light. The root word means to either consider or inquire. By implication, it means the order is being gathered. So from Erev to Boker can mean, because of the root words, from chaos to order. This is the reason why, if you ever visit a synagogue, we consider morning the beginning of the day. To the Jewish mindset, the sundown is when the day begins. Because from chaos to order, from darkness to light, was the first day and so on. Last couple of words for you. Uh, rakia, an expanse. This is what in some of your translations labels a firmament. Uh, in Strong's dictionary or in Strong's definitions, it calls that word a visible arch of the sky. Firmament is also for, uh, from the Latin firmamentum, which means firmness or a three-dimensional object in solid form. In other words, God created space. Moed. In your copy of God's Word, a lot of times it will be translated as seasons, but the more literal translations mean the appointed times. So when God created the stars, the reason behind His creation of the stars wasn't just to provide little tingles of light here and there, and it wasn't certainly not to give you something to guess about your future from. It was to tell the seasons and the moments of the appointed times, appointed times meaning in the Jewish mindset, the days of the feasts, the days of the passing months, when Sabbath was to hit, when Passover is to take place, when Feast of Tabernacles, the appointed times, the appointments with God. So, from Erev to Boker, from chaos to order, from darkness to light, from randomness you get design, from nothingness, you get space, matter, energy, time, you get reality. From a bunch of ceaseless noise, you get information, a signal, music. From non-existence, you get reality itself. From death, you get life. How many of you have ever heard of the term entropy? Entropy. It's a physics word that basically means that you have something that's organized something that is built and is brand new, and then as it gets older, it falls apart. It becomes disorganized. A car is a prime example. You want another prime example? Clean out your garage and see what happens in a few weeks. 
That's entropy. You start out organized, you start out brand new, you start out fully functional, and then gradually over time it just falls apart into chaos. Well, the book of Genesis says that the exact opposite is what happens. And in one day when we get to the book of Revelation, it will happen again. And when it does happen again, it will never come back. It, the law of entropy will eventually be repealed. But what Genesis tells us is that in the, in the beginning, this reality was non-existent. And then God himself by design brought it into existence and gave us a destiny, gave us a position, gave us a family, gave us a savior through it all. So Genesis 1, really quickly covering the creator in the creation. This is from the Christian Standard Bible, the Christian Standard uh, translation into English. In the beginning, actually, I'm sorry, let me give you time to look that up in your own copy of God's Word. When you get there, say amen. All right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Void in some of your translations. And darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. Um, watery depths there may be a, a, what in language is called a synecdoche, meaning that it's something, a, a general word that means something a lot more specific. In the case, we could say in, in matters terms, just fluid. Liquid, gas, plasma, and so forth. So basically, there was a spill of matter. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God, the Ruach, was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, and it was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. Notice that this is the first thing that God creates. The first thing that God ultimately creates was light. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was an evening, there was disorder, and there was a morning. There was order, which was the first day. That, that more literally, I know that in this translation it says one day, but um, more literally it would say the day one, the first day. Then God said, let there be an expanse between a firmament, between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so, so God is knitting together space and time and forming reality as we now understand it. And it was so. Then God called the expanse sky. And evening came and morning the second day. So he's forming, he's, he's putting matter together, connecting it with energy, connecting it with time. God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called sea, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and fruit trees on earth bearing fruit with seed in it according to all of their kinds. And it was so, each according to its own kind. 
The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. So in this one time, not only do you have plants forming, but you see plants that are mature enough to procreate. And God saw that it was good, and the evening came, and then the morning, and it was the third day. So from Erev to Boker, from chaos to order, came the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. And they will serve as signs for seasons and for days and for years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day, the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. I want you to think about that word for a second. What must creation have been like? When it was all said and done, what must creation have been like in nature for God, the sovereign ruler of everything that exists, to look around and say, it is good? Think of what beauty must, <laughs> must have been there at that time. Evening came and then the morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in water, each according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply upon the earth. Then from chaos to order, from Erev to Boker, from evening to morning, there was the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, creatures that crawl in the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God is speaking creation into existence. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds the livestock according to their kinds, all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, underline this in your copy of God's Word. Include this as a potential memory verse. Let us make man in our plural image. God, singular, Elohim, which is a plural word with a singular meaning. Let us make man in our image, according to our plural likeness. Unity of many. Three persons, yet one God. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl upon the earth. This is in Hebrew poetry. Anytime you see a verse do this in your copy of God's Word, where the paragraph is um, off to the side with a special annotation, that's poetry. 
basically this first chapter of the book of Genesis is one giant song. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God and created the male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls upon the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant upon the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird under the sky, for every creature that crawls upon the earth, everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Effectively, if you take this at face value, and I hope that you do, all of animal kind was vegetarian. And God saw, of course, I'm sure that there were pork chop trees and donut trees and cruller trees as well. But that's, that's the Robin Standard Edition. God saw that all that he had made. And it was very good indeed. Again, what must it have been like for God to look around all of creation and not one square inch would detract him from saying it was good. Evening and then the morning, the sixth day. Into chapter 2, very briefly, so the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, sanctified it, more literally. For on it, he rested from all the work of creation. This sets up a hepatic hepatic structure in the rest of the Bible. Things clustered together by sevens, as a memorial to creation. You have the word week in English, which doesn't mean seven days so much as it more literally means a gathering of seven. There can be a week of Sundays, seven Sundays. There can be a week of months, seven months, a week of years, whereas where we get the eventually the year of Jubilee and so forth. But just to recap what we've read, first day you have the creation of light. Second, you have matter and space. Third, you have the land, the earth itself, and the vegetation. I forgot to put the the sea there as well. Sun, moon, and stars as sources for life and markings of the passage of time. On the fifth day, you have the sea animals and birds. Sixth day, you have the land animals and humanity. And upon the seventh day, you have the first Sabbath. which was set apart by God. The Sabbath is interesting because it gets codified into law later on. But in the book of Exodus, it kind of hints that it was already being observed, at least as a tradition beforehand. We'll talk a little bit about that later. But of this it is certain, the Sabbath day was something that God initiated as a pattern for us. Now, I'm not saying that we should go back to worshiping on Saturday But I am saying that God gave us, at that point in time, a certain administrative duty over creation, including ourselves. 
And part of taking care of ourselves involves getting rest. So make sure for your own spiritual growth and your own well-keep that if you can't take Saturday off, find a day where you can take time rest. For our next session, please, by that point in time, have your initial meetings with your groups. It can be a phone call. I would prefer in person. I'm sure that your folks would too. Agree upon a reading plan. We're still early on yet. Review your notes and journal highlights from what you have read up to that point. And start talking about your thoughts on what we will end up covering, which will be the fall of humanity. Any questions? The question is, if God creates light first, but doesn't create the sun, moon, and stars until day three, where did that first light come from? Now, you sat with me through my revelation study last year. When the, uh, remember, everything that we know today, we know post-fall, we know post-curse. But once the curse is resolved in the book of Revelation, when the new Jerusalem comes down, the Bible tells us that there will be no need for the sun or the moon because why? He will be the light. I think my guess, and this is Robin's theology, this is my guess, that the first initial light was the concept that he himself exemplified and that he created the physical light, the light of nature, later on on the third day, the sun, moon, and stars. That's just me. I'll leave that for you all to puzzle out on your own. Anything else? Did you learn something this evening? Dan, could you uh, put a slide up of Acts 17.11, please? This is my disclaimer for any and all Bible study that I cover, that I, I too. Um, and I, I use this as a model because I want you to do your own homework and not just take anything that I say for granted. Actually, I hope that you don't take anything that any teacher says anywhere for granted. Don't let anyone spoon feed you truth, but do your own homework. All right. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away from Berea. Upon arrival, they went to the. Did I mess up Berea and Thessalonica? Okay, I flip flop Berea and Thessalonica. Leave it up to you to pick on me for that. All right, so it was the Berean Jews that were more noble in spirit. I'll just read it. 
The brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. The people there were more noble in character or more noble in spirit in some additions than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So basically what you just heard was that I was being picked on because I had flip-flopped which Christian from what city was actually the more noble of the two. But again, the reason that I put that there is because I think that the Word of God is too precious for any one person to have a monopoly on the truth. This is the Word of God written to each and every one of you. And it is by far a worthwhile endeavor to the point of being a worthwhile lifelong endeavor to understand what it says and what it means to both us as a church and us individually as believers. Amen? All right. Anything else before we dismiss? If not, let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. And I thank you for those who give so much of themselves to proclaiming your truth and to helping others along that path. Give us your insight. Give us your knowledge. Give us your wisdom. Give us your grace as we continue forth. Help us to grow. Help us to become the people that you've called us to be. Help us to ever be sculpted into the image of your Son. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person. To contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.